0: All right, we're going to hit a ton of scripture today, Um, so you'll need your Bibles because I'm going to read it fast. We're going to go through an entire chapter, Judges chapter 11. So you need to open up to there. Uh, We are going through as as you probably know, the book of Judges. We've been in the second part. We went in the first part uh, over July or ended in July. So all the sermons are available. The study guides will be helpful, and uh, we're going to fly through this. Last week's text, uh, I kind of doesn't match up with the study guide because I cut it short to focus a little bit on how bad we are. That's pretty much the theme of the sermon last week. It showed us that uh, we are uh, idolatrous, lawless, and rebellious, uh, just super sinful, bad people that we tend to uh, kind of minimize and uh, make less of. But we're so bad, this is important to remember, we are so bad that it required the Son of God to die in order to pay for our sins. That's how bad we are. At the same time, cannot forget that we are so loved that the Son of God willingly died for our sins. And so there's those two pieces of the cross that we have to keep focused on, and I think that we're really... Apt or it's easy to focus on the love of God uh, and forget um, the sin that um, required or maybe made that love manifest. So uh, what we see in the book of Judges here at this point is that God's chosen people, his children, Israel, have become so completely faithless at this point. Um, and by completely or totally faithless, what I mean is that God clearly told them before they went to the promised land that they were to expunge seven different nations and destroy their altars to these seven different gods that they had. And what we see in Judges chapter 10 is that they have worshipped every single one of those gods, all of them. And they have not pushed out or, or destroyed the peoples that they were supposed to destroy. They, in fact, lived among them and become very much like them. And so their failure to obey God's word, flat out, that's what it was, their unfaithfulness has resulted in oppression underneath, at this point, these Ammonite people. Now, um, they are fully aware of what they've done. This is not a surprise to them. They go to God, they say, look, we know that we have rejected you, we know that we are serving these other gods, Uh, would you save us? Again. And this time, God simply responds with no. Let the gods that you have chosen Save you. Cry out to them, I'm done. Which is just a horrifying thought to be abandoned by God, our Father. And so it horrifies them. They begin to repent a little bit and they even begin to say some of the things that might be right in the eyes of God, but we'll see they continue to do the things that are right in their own eyes. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 11. Um, I'm going to back up and read the first or last couple of verses of Judges chapter 10. Then I'm reading the whole chapter. So I'm going to read it fast just because I read fast, so stick with me, and then I will explain the whole story, but I want you to get the picture of the whole story. So, chapter 10 is where I'll we'll start, verse 17, after the conversation where God says, I won't save you, here's what happened. It says, Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, lived in the land of Tob. And the worthless fellows collected around him, and Jephthah went out with him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, "Uh, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, that's why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, all right, if you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head. And leader over them, and Jephthah spoke all the words before the Lord at Mizpah. So then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, "What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land?" And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, "Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, and now for restore it peaceably." Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent, and so Israel remained at Kadesh. And then, Israel, they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon... Did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jehaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. And so Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel and are you to take possession of them will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess and all that your Lord our God has dispossessed before us we will possess now are you better than Balak the son of Zippor the king of Moab did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Eror and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead, and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return to peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from the Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities as far as abel with, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son or daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites. And so she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions, and so he said, go. And they sent her away for two months, and she departed, and she and her companions wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. And she had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughters of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Let me just pray. Lord, that is your word pray that you will move me out of the way and speak the words that we need to hear from a very confusing and big story. Would you teach us how this points to Christ, what this reveals about you, about us, about our own hearts, about what you've called us to do. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So, a lot of words, a lot of story. Let me break it down for you in a way that actually you can swallow and not feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. So the people of Israel gather at Gilead to deal with this invasion of the Ammonites. What are we going to do? And instead of asking God, they ask one another. Hey guys, what are we going to do? Who's going to lead us? Who's going to rule over us? Now the right answer is God. The wrong answer is Jephthah. But that's the answer they come up with. Jephthah sounds a lot like a man we've seen already named Abimelech. Abimelech was several chapters ago. Uh, He was the illegitimate son of Gideon, one of the judges. Um, He was the daughter of Gideon and a concubine. He lived in another city. And Gideon, or I'm sorry, Abimelech had felt rejected because his dad visited uh, every other weekend or something to that effect. He was driven, therefore, by a huge chip on his shoulder and wanted, um, very ambitious, if you will. And he ended up, when his father died, destroying his family, killing, slaughtering his 70 half-brothers, and ultimately leaving Israel in ruins. That was Abimelech. Jephthah is the adopted son of a man named Gilead, the result of a one-night stand with a prostitute. But Gilead legally adopted him into his family to have an inheritance as a normal and regular family member. But once Gilead, the dad, dies, his half-brothers go to the leaders of the city and unadopt him legally, and ultimately kick him out of the house, rob him of the inheritance that was legally his. And so they chase him away, and Jephthah flees, and he ends up gathering a small band of, of guerrilla warriors, if you will, worthless men, and they ultimately end up, or he makes a name for himself as a mighty warrior leading a small band. It sounds very similar to David in some ways with his 300 men. And that's purposeful, but... Maybe I'll blog about that. Now, God doesn't lack for irony in this story. And a Jewish man, a who would read this and see the irony very clearly, because what you have, if you look at Judges, you have Israel, whom in chapter 2 God describes as a whore in rejecting him. Now those same people are appealing to a man to save them who is the son of a whore. Okay, so you have this... Irony that's going on, this story that's going on that basically parallels the relationship between God and Israel and Gilead and Jephthah. And when this invasion starts, they basically go find Jephthah and they make him an offer. They make actually a couple offers. The first offer is to say, hey man, come be our leader, be our general, be our commander and lead the army in this fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah's response is sounds very similar to God's response when Israel asked them, or Him, to save them. Um, and basically he says, why are you asking me? Why are you asking me? Aren't, aren't you the guys that rejected me? Aren't you the guys that despised me? Aren't you the guys that hate me? Aren't you the guys that disown me, completely wanted nothing to do with me? You don't really want me. What you really want is just to get out of your problem." You want to get out of the distress the situation that is too difficult for you to handle. So, like God, Jephthah basically refuses. No thanks. They simply want to use him. He's a tool for them, similar to how God was just a tool, a convenience for Israel. And the reality is, if we're really honest, oftentimes that's how... We kind of approach our Savior, convenient on call. When things get tough, I'm going to cry out to you, God. Uh, When things get difficult, I can't handle. I'll use you most of the time, though. Thanks, but no thanks. Be available if you will, but I probably won't need you until things get tight. But they sweeten the deal. Jephthah isn't exactly um, perfect and holy like God. They sweeten the deal a little bit, and they go, "Well." Why don't you be our ruler and the head of us all? Now, you've got to remember Jephthah's history, what he has, what he doesn't have. And this appeals to Jephthah because he clearly, and we find out, is driven to get what he believes he deserves, what has been robbed from him, his inheritance. And this opportunity, it's not just go, you know, lead the army and maybe get killed and maybe succeed, maybe fail. This is like, you'll be a ruler, dude. You'll have it all. All the wealth, all the respect, all the power, all the stuff and more that you are owed. And he's like, dang, that sounds good. This is my opportunity to get what I deserve. The guys that rejected me are going to be in submission to me. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. The despised one becomes the ruling one. All about that. And so Jephthah says, sure. And the crazy thing is, before Gilead makes this offer, they don't check with God. Before Jephthah accepts the offer, he doesn't check with God, although he likes to bring in God to confirm the offer. Gets a little spiritual when he wants to make sure that they hold to their deal. Like, if you bring me home and God gives me victory, then I'll be your ruler. And... The Lord's going to punish you if you don't keep your word. Well, he agrees, or they agree, come to agreement, and then before he even raises a sword, before he takes one step onto the battlefield, they make him ruler. And they take him to a city called Mizpah. Mizpah is a pretty important city historically in Judaism. And Mizpah, at the time the book of Judges was written, which was in the time after, between the Davidic and Saul kingdoms, King Saul and, and David, there was a little bit of a civil war in between there. This is probably when Judges was written. And Mizpah had historical value. If you read in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Mizpah was the place that Israel formally rejected God as king. And they asked for a king. They went to Mizpah. Samuel came to Mizpah and he said, Today, in 1 Samuel ten nineteen, you have rejected your God." who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. So what's happening here in Gilead is not just we just need someone to help us. It is we are rejecting God completely, and we want this man to lead us. He will be our leader. He will be our ruler. He will be the one that we depend upon. So you have Gilead ultimately using Jephthah to secure their kingdom. You have Jephthah using Gilead to secure what he feels like he deserves, and you have both of them using God when it's convenient to use him. Now, we see that Jephthah's a pretty wise guy. He might have a band of ruthless warriors, but he's not a dumb guy. He's a wise guy, so instead of just running into battle, he throws out a bunch of emails to go, hey, let's have an exchange here, and let's discuss. Maybe we can avoid fighting altogether. So that's what you see, this really long conversation that I read in Judges, Judges 11 is this exchange between the, the evil king or the king of the Ammonites and Jephthah. And he asks the question, subject code, why are you trying to kill us? Sin. And so the Ammonite king claims that you wrongly took our land. Israel has land that is ours, I am owed it, All right? It sounds just like Jephthah. I deserve this, give it back peaceably, or else. We do this the easy way, the hard way, Jephthah. And so Jephthah doesn't go, flex chest. Oh, really? Jephthah says, let me correct some errors you might have. So he sends a message back to him, and he basically says, um, you've got some revisionist history going on here. Let me tell you what the truth is. And he gives him a lesson in history, and a lesson in theology, and just a lesson in logic. logic. So let me explain what happened. The land he is talking about, when Israel came out of Egypt, you know, the whole come out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea, they came to a land, and it was Edom, and they basically sent a passenger pigeon to him and said, look, can we go through your land, we won't touch anything, we won't kill anybody, we're just trying to get to Canaan. And Edom said, no. Okay. Sent it to Moab. No. Okay. They didn't fight. They traveled around, and more like this. They traveled around, and they went on the east side. And they sent another message in to a king named Sihon. And the king said, "He's like, can we pass through peaceably? And the king's like, no, you can't, and I'm going to kill you now. Okay? it's pretty much what he said. I don't trust you. So he gathers his army, and he attacks Israel. Israel's like, fine, dude, bring it. And they fight him, and they defeat him. So historically, they didn't just come and like take the land. Ultimately, they had to battle and they tried to avoid fighting at all costs. But theologically, Jephthah says, but let's be clear, God gave us the land. We may have not tried to fight, but we did fight when we were called to. And God is the one who gave us the land. In other words, take this up with God. This is not our problem. You just gave it to us. Wouldn't you take land if Chemosh, which was their God, gave it to you? I think so. And in saying that, he basically said, oh, by the way, our God totally kicked Chemosh's tail, so uh, you want to be careful with that because it could happen again. So theologically, says, this is God. God is the one who possessed it. God is the one who gave it. It's all God, so take it up with him. by the way, he's way stronger than your fake little wood god that you worship. Okay? And the third reason he comes and says, let's think about this logically, okay? Um, there was a guy who was the king of Moab named Balak, called the Balak debacle, okay? And Balak was this king, and this is the land he's talking about. And he basically says, well, why didn't this king ever come and uh, take the land? And Balak was a guy, actually, if, you're, if you've ever been familiar with Bible stories, Balak was a guy who hired a guy named Balaam. And Balaam was a guy he hired to go and curse Israel because he wanted to attack him. And so he hired Balaam, gives him some money. Balaam goes up there and is like, okay, you know, go and curse them and call fire down or whatever. He's like, all right, bless Israel. He's like, what are you doing, dude? I told you to curse him. He's like, I, I, I don't know what happened, okay? He's like, all right, here's some more money. Go curse Israel. All right, bless Israel, right? And he, he can't. And so Ultimately, Bloch gives up. It's like, I'm not going to war. This is like too powerful. Forget it. And he never fights them. And he allows Israel. They just live there. Live amongst them. And right now, Jephthah's asking, okay, so it's been 300 years since that happened, and no one's fought war against us. and no one... Why are you bringing this up now? Isn't it a little late? Like, shouldn't your leaders prior to you, why didn't they bring it up? Common sense. And so he pretty much crushes all his arguments. Why? Because Jephthah knows his Bible. He knows his Bible really well, and that's important not because of the fact like, know your Bible like Jephthah, amen, let's go. It's not like that. Well, you see him do something that's incredibly unbiblical, because what he is at this point is using the Bible. He's not using the Bible because he is righteous and good and all these things. He's using the Bible because it's a convenient tool for him to get what he wants. And ultimately, what does he want? Power, what he deserves. And we all have something that we feel like we deserve. And honestly, a lot of us are driven by that, make our decisions according to that, make sacrifices to obtain that. And so he, at this point, is using the Bible, and he crushes the arguments of the Ammonite king. And I believe very much that he is driven by Jephthah, that is, his own ambition for glory. His own ambition, again, to obtain what he wants. But the crazy thing is, is that God still uses him as he is speaking and he is crushing these arguments, very selfishly motivated, God is still being proclaimed. The whole message that he's sending for Israel, for Israel's history, for even the enemy, this idolatrous, rebellious, lawless guy, his mouth is being used to say, the Lord saved, the Lord gave, the Lord has been faithful, the Lord defeated you, the Lord is the judge. He's saying those things. And I don't know about you, but I've always get disturbed sometimes about the voice and the message, right? The voice that, like, dude, you're a slime ball, but I see lots of fruit and people coming to Jesus of you. It's difficult for me to separate those things. Even some of the false teachers. You go, dude, I know your theology's jacked, but you're preaching Jesus. And Paul actually addressed that. And he's in jail in the Philippian jail and here's what he wrote and it might help us to maybe view some of these quote, false teachers or these people that we don't like who are preaching Jesus but not being the kind of people we think they should or doing the kind of ways we think they should here's what Paul said he said some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry and others from goodwill the latter do it out of love knowing that I'm put here in prison For the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Well, only that in every way, whether in pretense or fakiness or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Are we able to rejoice in the fact that Jesus uses tools that we don't like, but his name still goes forth? and that hopefully will allow us to be less irritated with some things, and maybe step back and stop looking at the tool, and see, man, that guy's so, he's just about himself, he's selfish and ambitious, but wow, God is out here using him, even. And guess what? Using you and I. Okay? So ultimately, we see Jephthah um, uses the Bible, and he's using it for his own, I think, ambition, and the Ammonite king doesn't even listen to him anyway. And so, he goes to battle, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord fills Jephthah. So what you see is the fact that the Spirit of the Lord is filling him, that God has chosen this guy. All of his issues, all of his baggage, all of his selfishly motivated agendas, God has chosen him, God has empowered him, God has gifted him, God is using him. He's chosen to be used. And just about to go into battle, to walk into the battlefield, He decides to make a vow. He's not told by God to make a vow, and I think he's making the vow to get himself a little extra, quote, insurance to make sure he gets his inheritance that he's working for. And he says to God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever, but actually, your Bible will probably note it, could be and should be translated whoever. Whoever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. I believe that Jephthah is actually thinking about a person. And if you think about it for a second, I don't know how many of you have uh, legally sacrificial animals tromping around your house that will come out to the door to meet him. Oh, a perfectly good sacrificial lamb. I'm so glad that he's here that I can sacrifice. He's thinking of a guy or a girl or a servant or someone. And yes, your mind should go, that's evil, isn't it? Yeah, you'll see. That's evil. I want you to see the the heart of what Jephthah's doing. We'll talk about all this in a second. But before we read kind of the tragic consequence of the vow, we need to ask ourselves why he's making it at all. Why does he make this big, grand, spiritual-sounding commitment? Now, I believe that the Lord is the same thing to Jephthah that he is to the Gileadites. A tool to secure his own greatness. Okay, Now, Jephthah, throughout this story, drops the phrase, the Lord, like six or seven times. So much that it's kind of like overt. Like, why are you talking about the Lord all the time? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And it sounds as if, when he uses it, he is trying to justify or to bolster his decision or his action. It's to kind of bring it in like, well, the Lord is the judge. The Lord is the one who gave. The Lord is the one who would do this. And I don't know if you've ever met or been one of those people who drops the Lord at the most inconvenient, strange, or opportune times. I went to a very charismatic school of which the Holy Spirit seemed to be speaking to everyone, everything, all the time. And how are you going to argue with that? When someone walks up and you says, the Lord told me, well, if the Lord told you, I guess I have to listen to that, right? Or if you met people that said, the Lord has called me to hear? It doesn't make any sense. He's told me to leave my family. You're like, okay, but if the Lord told you, I don't know how we can disagree with that. I had the elders um, one time. I came into an elders meeting, and I was dropping, for whatever reason, I make myself sound really awesome, I was dropping the Holy Spirit, like, you know, I feel like the Spirit this, Spirit this, and one of the elders went, well, if the Spirit's telling you that, what are, why are we even having a conversation? And I'm not suggesting that the Spirit doesn't speak. I'm not suggesting that, that you never use uh, the Lord. I really believe He's spoken to me here. I think we should go do this. But there's a very fine line between using that in a sense to be able to control people and using that in the sense that it's God-honoring. And I've seen, it's like, man, that is so awesome and spiritual and looks and sounds until it looks and sounds abusive. It's a fine line that it gets there, but when it gets there, it's obvious. You're like, how did we get there? Well, it's because no one ever questioned the spirits who were speaking, as 1 John 4 1 tells us to do. Now, I think Jephthah is using, in this case, a little bit of uh, spiritual control, either to control appearances or to control people. And I think this vow, if you will, is an outworking of that. Um, if he's willing to manipulate people, I think ultimately he's going to try to manipulate God. To think he can control God. To think he can gain God's favor, negotiate with him. And this is what I believe he's doing. So you've got a spirit-filled Jephthah, kind of like a Christian, who sounds as if he is trying to buy God's favor, right? This is what he says. I will worship you, God, if you come through for me. Uh, If you give me victory, if you restore my inheritance ultimately, if you give me everything that I deserve, I'll devote myself to you. I'll even sacrifice for you. The if-then statements with God. You ever made any if-then statements with God? If you do this, God, then this. If you save me from this, then this. If you make this happen, then I'm going to do this, God. You ever wonder what God thinks about that? Oh, thank you so much for that promise of yours. I'll obey you if, like, imagine your child saying that. I know you've told me to do this, and I'll obey you if you let me play video games for four hours. Like, uh, I don't think that's right, actually. So that's what I believe you have, this vow, or or kind of experience going on, where it's a picture of, quite frankly, a spirit-filled Christian trying to make a deal with God. Like an outlaw trying to make a deal with the judge. And knowing how he liked to keep up appearances, it seems, I think his vow he made was not like, all right, Lord, I'm going to go into this battle, and if you give it to me. I think it was like, all right, let it be known that I am vowed. I mean, I think it was public. I think it was loud. I think you want everyone to know, and I think that because he doesn't amend it when it goes sour. And he can't. But he wants to impress. He wants people to know God's on my side. The Spirit told me this. And I'm going to make this commitment. So before your minds and our minds, and I have spent the week trying to do this, wander into names and faces of others, people in your past, people in the present, people you like, dislike, I pray instead of going, yeah, I know people that have just used God and used Holy Spirit language and just thrown down, ask yourself how you have used God how you have used that language, how you have used, ultimately, spirituality, religion, whatever, to further your own agenda. And perhaps we should ask ourselves, you know what, when we're, even when we're asking for the Holy Spirit to be present, Lord, bring your presence here. Why are we asking that? Is it for Him or for you? How have we used God's Word to either condescend or criticize those we hate, or maybe control those that we love, like our own children and our friends. Dropping down the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And again, I don't want to say that's ever or always wrong. But as you begin to look at some of the sacrifices you've made for God, some of the commitments of your time and your treasure and your talent to God, ask yourself why you're making those commitments. Is it so that when you have fulfilled your commitment, you feel like God owes you? Well, I've done this, man. I gave generously here, God, so that you would give me generously over here. And if he doesn't come through for you, you're like, done with you. That's not the motivation to make commitment and sacrifice so that God will come through for you. He already has. He has fully come through in every way. So we better be careful about this idea of spiritual entitlement. Man, I have sacrificed so much for you, God. I went on a mission for you. I fed these people. I did this. And so you should be blessing me in some way. We need to be careful. Let us not forget, as Tim Keller shared in his own kind of conversion experience, that when we invite or accept the Lord into our lives, it's not as an assistant. Right? It's not like I'm glad you're here, God, because I've got a lot of things I want to do. That's not who the Lord is. He is the Lord of the universe. Jesus Christ, the creator, sustainer of the universe, who holds in the palm of his hand, you're going to be my secretary? You're going to be my helpmate? He's our Lord. He calls the shots. So, we must understand and remember that God will never, ever, 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 ever be used by you. though we will try. But the truth is, as we see with Jephthah, he will certainly use us. Even our sin. Even our selfishly motivated agendas. He is bigger than all of that. Praise God. Because there are lots of things I have pursued very wrongly, very selfishly, that he has still, in all pain and suffering, showing me my sin, still been able to redeem and to use. So even though God is silent about this vow, and he's actually silent through most of the story, all all of the story, he is still faithful to use Jephthah to rescue his people. He still empowers him. He still brings him to the battlefield, and he defeats the Ammonites. And the battle, strangely, is like one or two verses. That's it, out of all these verses. Because the aftermath is really what... It focuses on, and he returns to Mizpah after the battle victorious, and his daughter comes out clicking tambourines or whatever she's doing, and he's like, oh, no. And some people have asked, like, well, isn't he contrite? I think he is sad, but you've got to notice what he says. He rips his clothes. He's grieving. But here's what he says. His first words don't seem to be a man who is um, ultimately humbled by the fact that, a oh, man, I really screwed up. I need to take responsibility for this. What have I done? It's a man that sounds a lot like Adam and Eve when they're in the garden, and God shows up, and they go, uh, well, the woman. What woman? Uh, the snake. Blame shifting. Here's what he says to his daughter. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble for me. Really? I think the cause of the great trouble was his big old mouth and his selfish ambition. But then he says, I've opened my mouth to the Lord. Yeah, you did. And I cannot take back my vow. Yes, you can. See, some people argue that Jephthah makes uh, just a foolish vow, like he's just really stupid. Just makes an accident. Oops. Whoa, stuck in the vow. I don't think so. Some people argue that he makes a very pious thing and he's not actually doing what we, the worst case scenario, he's just devoting his daughter to a life of virginity, devotion to the Lord, and those types of things. Um, I don't think so. I believe that this spirit filled man makes a very pagan vow to sacrifice his daughter on the altar. And his vow was not rash, it was calculated. And his vow was not pious, it was the evilest of evils. And the reason why is because Jephthah, like everyone in Judges, is doing what is right in his own eyes. And he is in this case worshipping the one true God using whatever methods he can use to get to what he really worships, what he really loves, what he really deserves, even if it means destroying his family see, God's law, if he was very familiar with the Bible, if he had read the book of Leviticus, he would have learned that this law, or there was a law that existed where he could amend these kind of vows. But guess what? It cost him money to do so. Guess he didn't want to spend the extra change to save his daughter. Secondly, the book of Leviticus, as amazing as God is, having written this hundreds of years prior to this, speaks to this exact issue, exactly, and condemns it directly. Not only what he's going to do, but the fact that you don't do it because of the people who do it, who Jephthah just defeated. Check it out, Leviticus chapter 20. And in the conversation that, that Jephthah had with uh, the Ammonite king, he mentioned a god Chemosh. Well, the land of Moab, there were two gods, actually, and Chemosh may have not been the god at this time, it was actually a god named Molech. So check out what he writes in Leviticus chapter 20 as part of the law. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones, and I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and I will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him, in whoring after Molech. Very specifically. So you've got a guy who I believe is clearly making a vow because ultimately he's worshiping not the one true God, but using Him. Yet he's still used by God amazingly. As spiritual as he may have sounded, Jephthah did not hear the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord. He didn't love or worship the Lord. Without doubt, I believe that God is going to have us make sacrifices in our life for ministry. Now when I say ministry, I mean you all have been given the ministry. Of reconciliation, you are all ambassadors for Christ. You are all missionaries. You are all have some ministry to fulfill, and God will ask you to make sacrifices. Generosity, like people are like, what is generous time and talent and treasure? It's when you actually have to change your lifestyle because it hurts. And so I remember having a conversation with my wife about what our what it was going to look like for our family, and going from a teacher. Summer's off, holidays off, raise every year, walk away, 220, wheels off the campus, I don't think about kids anymore, right? Pastoring's a little bit different. So I said there's going to be sacrifices, and there are sacrifices. And although I believe God does not want us to worship our families, He, without doubt, does not ask us to sacrifice our families on the altar for Him. Ever! Ever! That's one of my, I won't say greatest fears, but I do fear what my children experience as PK kids. Because everyone knows PK kids who, boo, off the cliff, right? This like psycho, some of you might be them, right? That idea of like, wow, what's he going to do? What's he going to see? What are they going to think? My hope is that they see a father and a mom who love Jesus, who makes sacrifices, but didn't sacrifice their family. Jephthah made a spiritual-sounding commitment out of devotion to himself and other gods. And God gave him over to it, and he let him have it. He let him have the gods of wealth and power and respect, and it resulted in the death of his only daughter, and ironically, tragically so, it resulted in the death of the very inheritance he had hoped to accomplish because the line ended with her and his inheritance would last as long as he did, and then it would be given to someone else. So God gave Jephthah exactly what he sought after, everything that he deserved. And as Jephthah said, God is judge, and will not be mocked. So what's this mean for us? And we close it this way. Here's the truth. If We're all about our own agendas. We all have selfish ambitions that we're driven by. We all have something that we go, you know, this has been taken from me, this respect, love, money that we deserve, and that governs and drives a lot of us, and we will sacrifice whatever and often whomever in order to get what we believe we deserve. We need rescue from our own sense of deserve, our own sense of entitlement. It's deep within us. Maybe you don't struggle with it like I do, but I do. I'm owed this. I think I should get this. We are the people of Gilead, I believe, all looking for a Savior to get out of the mess that we find ourselves in, the one that we don't think that we caused or deserve, the one that is painful. And we're looking for a Savior to save us, to protect that kingdom we've built or the kingdom we want. We need a Savior, and the truth is is, most of us will find one and another and another and another and another except the one Savior that Jesus said, or God said, I'm sending, which is Jesus Christ. And perhaps we don't think of him uh, because, after all, he's kind of like Jephthah. Not real impressive, Galilean peasant born to an unwed teenage mom in a Middle Eastern city that no one really liked. So many of us, the world included, but even some here, look at Jesus the same way that Gileadites first looked at Jephthah. Well, nothing to do with him. He's not impressive. In fact, he's kind of yucky. You dismiss him. You minimize him. You run him out of your presence because, well, he kind of threatens the kingdom that you've built. But like the Gileadites, when things get painful, when you get overwhelmed with life, when you begin to be enslaved to something that you can't fight any longer, I pray, I really pray that you'll turn to him. That you'll turn to the one with despicable origins. origins. You'll turn to the one who was rejected by men. You'll turn to the one who was considered an outlaw and a friend to sinners, who was falsely accused, sentenced as a traitor, and killed like a common criminal. And some of us, and many have, will turn to Jesus in pride, and you'll just grab onto Jesus because, oh, well, he'll help me get what I want. And you will use him for selfish gain. And Paul in his letter said, well, what happen there is that you'll have the appearance of religion, you'll sound spiritual, look spiritual, you have all the language, you'll even do spiritual things and make sacrifices but it will lack any power to transform you because it's all about you. It's all about getting the inheritance, the respect, the wealth, the success, the peace, whatever it is you feel you deserve. And then there will be others, quite frankly, that God breaks. Those that come to Jesus in humility and they realize, you know what, I don't deserve squat. And I have absolutely nothing to give to God that he could use or want. I have nothing to appeal to him for favor. None of my works. None of the great things. Like nothing. See, if you want to see a picture of faith in the story, look at his daughter. She's innocent. She's pure. And after a time of mourning, what does she do? She submits herself to that which she doesn't deserve, silently and willingly, taking responsibility for sins that are not her fault. Man. Man. Sounds a lot like Jesus. And this is the kind of sacrifice that God requires. David says in Psalm 51 about God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Here's the rub. This is the kind of sacrifice that God requires. But you can't do it. And that's why it's the kind of sacrifice that he provided. He requires it and he provides it. Apart from grace, apart from God honestly just blowing our mind open and showing us our sin, we are not capable of changing our own hearts, but Jesus can. Jephthah is designed to point us to a different kind of Savior. See, Jephthah might point us to Jesus, but Jesus ain't at all like Jephthah. He is the Savior, and he saved much differently than Jephthah did. Jesus was not driven by selfish ambition. He was driven by a selfless devotion to God. And Jesus did not pretend to be spiritual in order to control people. He easily could have. Everyone wanted to make him king. But he showed us that being spiritual meant serving And Jesus didn't and doesn't ask you to sacrifice anything. The one who deserved everything, he emptied himself and he sacrificed himself to give you the inheritance that you don't deserve. That's who our Savior is. He allowed himself to be rejected. He allowed himself to be abused. He allowed himself to be mocked and abused So that we might be glorified. We might be used by him. We might experience approval from him. We might get an inheritance that's nothing. Or I should say that on earth nothing can compare. So I pray that as you come to the table today, you consider something very hard. If you're not a Christian, Know that there's something in you driving you to make your decisions and it's not going to satisfy. You are seeking to um, obtain something you feel like you deserve. And I'm telling you right now, even if you got it, it will kill you. Turn to Jesus. And For those of you who have faked the funk for a long time, using all kinds of spiritual language, and accepted Jesus, oh, he's my Savior, but he's not truly your Lord, I ask you to come to the table and confess that. And then know, as I started, that you are bad. You are bad. So bad that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die to pay for your sins. But so loved that Jesus willingly came and died for your sins. I pray you will serve Him.